So, obviously, we're normally a very tight and professional outfit, um, but the seams are showing, at least for me this week, um, in part because some of my own are, are, are busting. <laughs> um, uh, we miss David, we miss Michael, um, and if, if we need any evidence that my own, my own preparations are suffering, we need to look no further than the title of the sermon being title. Fortunately, Courtney did um, do a great job on the bulletins, and the title, which is actually very scary in this red font, is The Bridegroom of Blood. Um, and that comes from the section of Exodus that we are in. Uh, we are continuing our series. We'll be in the second half of the fourth chapter of Exodus today, 18 to 31. Um, but before we get all into that, I, I ask the question, who are you? Uh, tell, tell me about yourself. When, when we hear those questions, when we meet people, regardless of the setting, whether it's you know a friend of a friend, whether it's that awkward forced meet and greet at the beginning of seminars or trainings or what have you, you know, tell everyone a little bit about yourself. Um, where's the first place we go? Where, what do we jump to when someone asks us, hey, who are you? Tell me a little bit about yourself. And I think for a lot of us, especially if you know, we're not embarrassingly unemployed, uh, we'll, we'll go, well, I do this. This is my job. Um, or we might talk a little bit about the relationships in our life by which we define ourselves. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a mother. I'm a sister. Whatever it might be. Um, and, and the list of things that we could go with in some ways tells us a little bit about where our priorities are, how we primarily identify ourselves to other people. Um, some of us, of course, are very pious, and the first place we go is, well, I'm a Christian. Um, and that's not necessarily the, the wrong approach. Um, who are we? That's, that's kind of our, our question in part for today. So last week, we, we spent some time together um, reading and studying and seeing a little bit about uh, Moses receiving the call of God on his life this commission to return to Egypt to face Pharaoh, to face his own people, which is interesting because the way Moses was asking questions, it seemed like he was actually more scared of facing his own people. Uh, and he's called to deliver this miraculous message of impending salvation. And we see him accepted, if reluctantly. And it's interesting because this, this call on Moses' life happens in the midst of Moses's life. And by that I just mean that it's not happening in a vacuum. When God calls him, Moses is actually doing stuff. He's in the middle of his work day. He was on that mountain in the wilderness because he was herding his father-in-law's sheep. This happened in the midst of his already existent identities. So what does that call of God mean for the man Moses? What does it mean for the life he's already living? So let's look at Exodus 4, 18 to 31 today. Um, and, and I think in there we will find uh, a, a picture of the implications of answering the call of God for our lives. Exodus 4, starting at 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, 
When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord in which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Uh, let's do the same. God, thank you for this word today. Thank you for this time and this place to hear you speak into our hearts, God. Help us to speak clearly. Help us to hear well. In Jesus' name, amen. So, my first question is, did anyone else get whiplash while reading that? You're, you're going along. Hey, Jethro, can I go back to Egypt? Sure thing, Haas, okay. Pack the wife and the kids in the minivan. God's like, hey, this is what's going to happen. Okay, stop at the motel. Check in. And then... All of a sudden, God jumps out of the bushes and it's like, it's time to die, Moses. I'm going to shank you. And, and what? Where did this come from? And then God's, I don't know, choking out Moses or something. And his wife's all like, I know what I'm going to do. Minor genital surgery is what this situation needs. Uh, so she just does that right there. God's like, yes, exactly. That's what I was waiting for. Leaves. And then Moses goes to Aaron, and, and we're like, whoa, 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 no, not Aaron, stop, back up, what just happened? Um, I don't know. That's what happens to me reading that passage. Um, this is one of those parts of the Bible that's, that's so weird, we either remember it because it's weird, or because we don't have a mental hook to hang it on because it, it doesn't mean anything to us, it, it gets forgotten. Um, now, I, I don't think the Bible has any throwaway parts um, and, 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 and if, we, if we just kind of move past this because it's so weird, I think we miss out on part of what the biblical witness has for us. Um, you know, pick your Moses movie. This part doesn't make it in. Um, but, but I think there's something for us in this section, and I think that once we spend a little time studying, um, we'll, we will see something about who God is and... And I hope you'll become convinced, as I have been, that what we see here is that our primary identity is through our relationship to God. Because where we stand in relation to God determines where we stand in relation to everything else. And to say that again, our, our primary identity is through our relationship to God because where we stand in relation to God determines where we stand in relation to everything else. It's a bit of a mouthful, but, but I hope you follow me. So how is that? When we consider our relation to God, some implications emerge. When, when, we, when we look at the biblical record, when we encounter God, when we think about 
what he has said to us and who we are in relation to him that ought to have implications for our life. If it doesn't, we're not thinking through the situation as carefully as perhaps we ought. Um, so here's one of the first implications that I think this text illustrates admirably about our, our relation to God and our primary identity. And that's that while, yes, I, I think that the most important identity, our primary identity, is through our relationship to God, I think this text also at, illustrates something that maybe too often we, we downplay, and that's that it's not the only identity that we have. And, and I think I kind of hinted at that in the opening when I said this call of God on Moses' life came in the midst of Moses' life. He was working. He's a blue-collar guy with a job. He's a husband. He's a father. Uh, ethnically, he doesn't know what he is. He was born a Hebrew, raised an Egyptian. He's living in exile in Midian. Um, religiously, it's hard to say. Maybe he remembers the God of his fathers. Maybe he's fallen into the pagan practices of his, of his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. We don't know. But, but Moses is awash in sources of potential identity. Uh, personal responsibility, uh, stewardships. All these things are part of his life when God calls him. Now, I'm, I'm throwing that word identity a lot, but I, 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 I hope you see what I mean when I'm just saying that there's all of these aspects that if someone asked Moses, who are you? Tell me a little bit about yourself. He could lead with, well, I'm a shepherd. I, well, I'm this. Well, I'm that. Well, I'm descended from these people. And what's interesting is I think the book of Exodus has been intentionally playing this up. Uh, I think that this who is Moses question has been developing from chapter 1 and onward. We're being asked, well, is he an Israelite? Is he an Egyptian? Both have rejected him. Is he a Midianite? Are they accepting him? Well, he's living there. Has he accepted that? And, and so I think this tension has been building. And so... That's, that's the tension, that is the question. Who is Moses? What is his identity that has been building up to this moment, up to this passage? Now, Moses receives and answers God's call and it has an immediate impact on his life. Like I said, he's out doing his job when this happens. And God tells Moses to go back to Egypt. And I mean, there's some very immediate practical concerns to that. Well, what are the vacation policies at, at Jethro's Shepherding Incorporated? You know, does he need to give two weeks notice? How, how does that work? <laughs> and that's somewhat modernly anachronistic, but I mean, the basic idea remains, uh, there's an issue here, right? Jethro took Moses in when he was a wandering vagrant. He gave him a home, he gave him a job, he brought him into his family. And, and suddenly Moses has a calling, which is calling him away from all that. The, the shepherd's crook becomes the staff of God at the burning bush. And Mo, one of Moses' identities is suddenly needs to be prioritized over the other. So Moses asks permission to go. And he does so in a rather roundabout way, which is kind of interesting. You know, God's called him to, to go save the people of Israel. But when he talks to Jethro, he just says, I'm going to go check on my people and make sure, see if they're still alive. Um, now, that could be that Moses is just kind of unsure himself, and he's saying, well, look, okay, God, I'm going to go, and we're just going to go and see, I mean, let's see if the, the Hebrews are even alive, because last time I was there, Pharaoh was killing them. Um, so maybe, Mo maybe Moses is just unsure, or maybe he's just telling Jethro the version of events that's going to sound like the least like Moses just went crazy, and he's just saying, hey, I'm going to go check on my relatives. Uh, and he's giving you know, Jethro the attenuated story. We don't know. Um, but, but whatever is happening... He, he, he does this. 
Moses asks permission, and Jethro lets him go. Moses had been serving Jethro and has been freed to serve God. He gathers up his family. Again, more of Moses' source of identity as a husband, as a father, his responsibilities. And it's interesting because those don't just disappear when God calls. He's going back to Egypt to face his adoptive family to once more seek to liberate his ethnic family, leaving his tribe in exile in Midian. And so again, this tension called by God, yes, in the most clearest and powerful of ways, and yet not his only identity. So, and, and I hammer this point just a little bit um, because I, I can't help but wonder if we relate a little bit. Someone asks who you are and what do you tell them? Are you your job? Are you your hobbies? Are you your politics? Are you proud of your cultural heritage? Do you, do you love the history of your people? Are you a sports fan, a Star Wars fan? Um, not, of course, the prequels. None of you are that terrible of people. Um, we have multiple sources of identity. Um, and, and as I hinted earlier, you know, we have been in the church for a while. We know the right answer here. Well, our identity is that we're believers, we're Christians, and that's true. Um, and it is important, and it is the most important. That's, you know, one of my, that's the big idea here is that that is our primary identity. But I think we're often in such a rush to get to that truest, best place that we, we, we never integrate the rest of our life with that true theological point that, yes, this is our primary identity, but our other identities, maybe they need to change, maybe they need to be removed, maybe they need to become the less, like Moses is shepherding, um, but the rest of it doesn't go away. Moses doesn't say to Zipporah, hey, Zipporah, I, I got called by God, um, so I'm going to go save the Hebrew people. You and the kids can just deal with it. Um, see ya. Now, he, he packs them up. He, that that responsibility, that stewardship, that identity doesn't go away when he's called by God. But it doesn't leave it unchanged either. And, and, and we'll go into that a little bit more. It's into our lives, into our numerous identities that the call of God comes. God calls whole people. He calls us as men, as women. He calls us as people with past and responsibilities. Our relationship with God isn't our only identity, but yes, it is the most important one, the primary one. Um, and so that's where we come to the second point. Our standing in relation to God, it is the only identity that will save us. So Moses sets out, and God tells Moses what's going to happen, what's inside the message he was bringing. And I'll, I'll just read uh, verses 21 through 23 again. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Moses is bringing a message of hope and freedom, yes, but he's also bringing a message of judgment. But even in that judgment, God is making a staggeringly gracious claim. He's claiming the people of Israel as his own. He's claiming them as sons. And see, another theme of Exodus that's been developing and that this chapter continues to develop for us and will continue to develop as the book goes on is that this, this people 
We're seeing competing claims on this people, the claims of God over and against the claims of Pharaoh. Pharaoh says these people are his slaves, his to rule, his to manage, his to kill or to spare as he chooses. And God says, no, they're mine. And, and it would be abundantly gracious in and of itself for God to claim them as his own, as slaves, just like Pharaoh has. He could say, you're not Pharaoh's slaves, you're my slaves. And that would be a massive step up. That would be an immeasurable honor. But he doesn't say that. He says that these people are mine, they are my sons, they're inheritors. They're part of the family. They're honored and included and accepted by me. God doesn't say give those back, they're mine. The message to Pharaoh is let my son go that he might serve me. And that word serve is interesting because uh, whether we know it or not, we heard it back in chapter 3 when God said, when you bring the people back, the sign will be that you will worship together on this mountain. That word that translates as worship in chapter 3, we translate here in chapter 4 as service uh, because they're the same thing. Worshiping and serving, uh, it's, it's this unified concept. So that, that idea is coming back. God's saying that let my, my son go, that he can come and worship freely. They already have a God, Pharaoh, and it's not you. And that's a theme, as I said, that, that will continue to develop, but, but it pops up here. And so this question remains, this question is being raised by this, this growing tension. Who do these people belong to? Who will they serve? Uh, Moses asks Jethro to let him go that he might serve God. And Jethro graciously does let him go. As we read, Pharaoh will not for the people of Israel. And the answer to that will be judgment. Those who would destroy God's adopted children, his claimed people, those who would get in the way of their freedom to serve and worship the God who has become their father, will be denied the very thing they sought to deny God, their own firstborn children. This is the message Moses brings, and this, this sets up the danger. Where will the people stand in relation to God? Will any other identity they have matter in the face of that coming judgment? When Moses comes to deliver that, that message that's, that's a two-edged sword, on the one hand, hope and deliverance, on the other, terrible judgment, that sword will divide on the basis of where people stand in relation to God. And, and every other shared trait they might have, whether it's ethnic, whether it's interests or hobbies or, or gender or, or family relations, we're both husbands, we're both fathers, what have you, those things, while important, won't matter at all before the face of that dividing line between salvation and judgment. And so it's then, at this moment, with this tension set up, this idea of the, the double-edged sword of Moses' message, it's at that moment with this discussion of who is my son, who have I claimed, that Moses begins to make his journey. That's his last conversation with God. And as he begins traveling out of Midian back to Egypt, he comes to a literal and metaphorical crossroads. The identity crisis that Moses has been experiencing throughout these first four chapters comes to a breaking point. He's at a place of lodging, a campsite or something similar. They didn't have developed inns and whatnot back then. Um, but he comes to this, this place of transition when suddenly, shockingly, out of the blue, God moves against him. And we're surprised when we read this. We don't see it coming. And, and I think that's intentional in the writing. Uh, it can feel like, wait, what is this? This is bad writing. It doesn't make sense. There's no transition here. But I think the lack of transition is in part the point. 
if we're shocked when this attack happens, when we read this in the Bible, no doubt we're in the same place Moses was when it happened. He didn't see this coming when it happened any more than we see it coming when we're reading. We think he and God are good. God's giving a mission. He's following it. He's not complaining anymore. And then suddenly this happens. Why? We're shocked. Moses is shocked. We should be. This is not on the travel itinerary. What is going on? Now, this passage is legitimately challenging just because it's, it's full of pronouns uh, without a clear antecedent, uh, a name that says this is about them. When it says him here, it means this guy. And so the, the difficulties are legitimately there, but I think we can, um, well, you know, we can just follow it through. The Lord met him. Who? Moses? Probably. Um, but Moses' two sons were there, so they're, they're possible options for him, and sought to put him well, again, who? Moses, one of his sons, to death. And then Zipporah, at least we know who that is, that's good, uh, took a flint and cut off her sons. Which one? There's two, Gershom and the other one. Uh, foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. And it's interesting if you look at the ESV, the text note actually at the bottom says, actually the Hebrew has him. So the ESV translators put Moses' name in there, but it just says him again. So again, we're left wondering. And, and so on and on it goes. And Zipporah says, a bridegroom of blood. Well, what does that mean, Zipporah? Well, it's because of the circumcision. That doesn't help me, Zipporah. Thank you. Um, so is this vague enough for us? Well, I, I think we can break it down. Um, God meets the family en route at this place of meeting. And we read that God seeks to kill one of the males in the family. And it is vague who. And how he meets them and how he seeks to kill them in what way are equally vague. We're kind of left to our imaginations on that one. Um, the word for meet usually in the Bible seems to meet an actual mean an actual physical encounter, uh, so possibly a, a menacing angelic manifestation, uh, angel of the Lord type deal. That, that's one option. Uh, how does he seek to kill them? That's one of those weird things that says it seeks to kill him. Um, and it's like, well, it's God. If he wanted to kill them, is he going to have trouble? Like, is it going to be a process? Um, you know, is there an angel stabbing with a sword, but Moses, 80 years young, is just really spry and dodging for a while? And this, I mean, probably not. Um, so, and, and so some choose to see the meeting more metaphorically. They're, and the attack is a disease or an illness or something like that. God met them and afflicted one of them with something. But, but however you choose to see it, I think the essential points remain. So I, I, I will attempt to share with you my personal interpretation of these events. Because usually we like to stick with what is absolutely certain. We're not here to hear me speculate about what I think about stuff. Um, so, but for the purposes of trying to present a coherent narrative, I will just kind of go ahead with how I suspect this played out, and, and you can feel free to say, yeah, maybe, maybe not. Um, but I believe that beyond that, the actual intended point of the biblical author will, regardless of whatever casting decisions you or I might make in, or in interpreting this, will emerge clear and meaningful. So in order to understand this, the first thing is circumcision, because that's kind of at the heart of this story, isn't it? That, that's what this hinges on. The, the attack happens, and it is circumcision that ends it. So circumcision, if, if we remember our Genesis, which I'm sure we're all extremely well versed in, um, is, is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. God came to the man Abraham 
and made a covenant with him and promised him that he would become a great nation and that all the peoples of the world would be blessed through his seed and that he would give him the land, his descendants the land of Canaan. Um, and then the, the mark of this unsolicited, gracious covenant that, that God asked nothing for in return was the, the, the mark of acceptance of obedience to that covenant was the right of circumcision. Abraham and his descendants were set apart by the right of circumcision. And if you wanted to live under the protection and the promises that God had made to that people, then you were obedient to that right. So at that point in history, that was the offer, offer that God had made to humanity. Though you're sinful, though you've rebelled against me, though I'm holy and righteous and you guys are anything but, I will accept you because of my promises to Abraham. Now signify that by being obedient so that your family will be marked as belonging to God. And that was, that was what the Jewish people were called to do. The, the descendants of Abraham, the descendants of Isaac, the descendants of Jacob, who would become the man Israel, the people living in slavery in Egypt right now. That's who they were. And that's who Moses came from. But Moses had not been obedient in that way. And we know that because when this event happens, we know that he had at least one son who was not circumcised. Now, Moses was almost certainly circumcised himself just because he had been raised by his Hebrew parents for the first little bit of his life, and, and that happened. He was there long enough for them to take care of that according to the rules. But at least one, possibly both of Moses' sons, haven't been circumcised. And if we remember uh, a couple weeks ago, Gershom was named Gershom because it sounds like the Hebrew for, for sojourner. Gershom was the son of Moses' exile. Gershom was named. I'm not living in Egypt anymore. I'm not among my own people anymore. I don't know who I am. Uh, he, his very name spoke to Moses' alienation from his Hebrew identity, from all his identities. His, and, and, and if we talk about, well, Moses has an identity crisis, how much worse for Gershom? His mother is a Midianite. His maternal uh, grandfather is a pagan priest. His dad is seriously messed up. He doesn't know who he is. Um, what's, what's that kid's identity like? Moses has not marked his family as belonging to God. He has not been obedient. Parts of Moses' past and his present aren't square with his relationship to God. Moses' children at that moment don't have a covenantal standing before the Lord. Because Moses, their father, had not been obedient to God's commands to do so. And so, that might seem, okay, so Moses didn't dot his I's, Moses didn't uh, cross his T's, oh, and there's the lowercase j's too, don't forget those. And it, it, it might feel like nitpicking to us, but um, I don't think it is. I think it's serious enough in and of itself, but it gets worse. And that's because here's the kicker, if you remember... God just told Moses what his mission is. He's going to Egypt and he's going to deliver a message that if ignored will cost people their children. Their firstborn. And presumably Moses is okay with that. Yep, I'm on your side, God. I've got the message. Uh, I'm on your side. The Egyptians aren't. I'm going to go and announce judgment on everyone who isn't square with you. I'm going to announce judgment on everyone who's standing before you is not right. And yet, ironically, not realizing that that second group includes his own family. 
So, so what do I think happened? What, how do I think this, this, this scene plays out? Well, I think God appeared to Moses on the way, visible and menacing, and demanded from Moses the price that the message he was bearing would ask of everybody else, his firstborn son. I think God's attack was, if not on Gershom, then at the very least precipitated by Gershom's lack of covenantal standing before the Lord because his father hadn't been obedient to circumcise him. Moses was going to go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let God's sons go or else Pharaoh would lose his own son. And Moses did this oblivious to the fact that his own firstborn son was outside the covenant due to his own failings as a father. He was happily setting out to deliver a judgment that would, if seen through, destroy his own family. When, when, when God's judgment comes, sword drawn, what matters? What identity matters in that moment? Does being Egyptian, does being ethnically Israelite, being rich or poor or smart, in that moment what matters is where we stand in relation to God. And I think that scene, this scene shows that terrifyingly, powerfully. Are we in the bus on the comfy seats or are we standing in front of the bus that's coming right at us? And in that moment, Moses and his family were not standing in the right place in relation to God. So faced with that, that foretaste of judgment to come, seeing the terrifying holiness of God turned to face them, to be directed against them and their short coverings, they thankfully respond in obedience. They respond by seizing the means of entering into a right relationship with God that God had provided at that point. They place their family under the protection and promise of the Abrahamic covenant, and they do that via circumcision. And Zipporah circumcises their son, which is interesting, because normally fathers do that. So what's the significance there? Maybe Moses was incapacitated by the attack of God. Maybe it was meaningful that Zipporah did it. Zipporah, the daughter of the pagan Midianite priest, almost as if saying, I identify with God's people. I enter into the covenant as well. God, let me be counted as yours. Let my children be counted as yours. Whose feet should bring the blood of the circumcision too? Again, we don't know. There's a couple options. Maybe the ESV guys are right. I, th I think there's a good chance they are. Maybe it is Moses. Maybe she marks his feet with the blood of the circumcision to identify him with the blood of the covenant. Maybe it was Moses under attack, dying, and maybe she brought this token of obedience of right standing with God to his feet and marked him with it, identified him as the father of a family set apart by the grace of God. And then God relents. He sheathes the sword because now they get it. And, and bridegroom of blood, what does that mean? Well, as, as God relents, as, as mercy overcomes judgment and her husband comes back to her from the brink of death, she exclaims that this covenant, the blood of the circumcision, has brought the man she married back to her. That they're newly married again in an entirely new way because they aren't just a family of people making their way alone and individually in the world together, but joined by blood and convenience and necessity, but they're a family consecrated to God, adopted as a unit and as individuals by God, counted as his and under his protection. This, this moment, this attack is a crucible it's a burning conflagration of fire that will either transform or destroy those who enter it. Why do I see it this way? Well, 
by the grace of God, they repent and are reconciled to God, and they're transformed, not destroyed. Now, why, why, why do I interpret the events this way? Well, in part because I think what we see is that after this moment, after this scene, the identity crisis in Moses that's been building in the book of Exodus up to this point, it's gone. It's never brought up again. It's a non-issue. The author forgets about it. And I don't think he forgets about it. I think he's saying, this is where it gets resolved. This is where it doesn't matter anymore. This is where all the other identities and questions about who am I, where do I come from, who do I stand with, are resolved and washed away in the relative meaninglessness of knowing that apart from all that, before all that, more important than that is that I and my family have a right standing before God. And, and even if you're like, well, you know, I'm not so sure about that. Look what happens next. What, what's the next scene after that? Moses reunites with his long-lost brother Aaron. He, he goes home to his people as an adult for the first time ever. And he was terrified of being rejected again. We see that in his objections to God back in chapter 4. And instead, he is as God told him he would be, as God promised. He's accepted. He's received. And it's not because he was ethnically one of them. He was ethnically one of them before, and they rejected him. This time, the group receives him not as a racial member, not as a guy who's selling something good, but under the covenant of God's grace as people sharing in that adoptive sonship through the mercy of the Lord. That's, and that's our third point. I've, I've, I've kind of already made it before I announce it, but that's our third point. Yes, our primary identity is in relation to God. Yes, that is the only identity that saves us. But it's that right standing before God that redeems all the other identities, all the other relationships. If I'm right about the divine attack, and I think that I am, we see Moses' family brought out of disunion and identity crisis by being reconciled individually and as a family to a right standing with God. They're, they're playing for the same team now, and they're united by their shared citizenship in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. There are other identities they still have. They're still fathers and mothers and brothers they're descendants of so-and-so, but those relationships are healed. They're transformed by the fact that they ha now have a right standing before God. And things are never perfect this side of eternity, but I think we see in our own lives that our, our relationships gain a new perspective and begin to return to their God-designed place when we view them through the lens of our primary identity as a people claimed by God. When, when Moses comes back to the people of Israel, they receive his message. They receive this offer of adoption by God to be his people, to be his sons. And it's that right standing before God that allows the other identities in their fullest senses to, to become in their fullest senses the blessings that God had always designed them to be for us. Because so many of our, our, our relationships, so many of our other sources of identity are profoundly unsatisfying. Um, whether it's our work, whether it's our families. My, uh, I love my children, but, but they, can't, 
they cannot serve as the source of my identity because, A, that's not fair to them, and B, they're just going to disappoint me. They're not that great. <laughs> um, my wife, as wonderful and amazing as she is, can't be, no matter what the songs on the radio say, everything to me because I can't hang all of my happiness and well-being and sanity on her because um, that's not... It's not a, a load that she is rated to bear. Um, and, and she's willing to try because she loves me, but, but if I put that on her, I do her a disservice and I will disappoint myself and I will drive her crazy. <laughs> our, our parents are often the, the first source of acceptance that we receive, and they're also the first people to withhold it. Uh, in our lives, and, and maybe we've been blessed by parents who've consistently extended that acceptance to us. Um, I, I don't know if that's you, good for you. Um, that wasn't always me. Um, it wasn't not always not me, but, um, but, but you know, it was a mixed bag, and I'm sure that some of you, that's the same, same way. But, but even if we had consummately loving and accepting parents, that relationship still isn't everything to us. Even the best relationships we have aren't everything to us. And so I, I, I say all that, and I, ho I hope that I'm being terribly unsubtle, and you, you're all seeing where this is going miles out, but our identity before God, our standing before God, it heals those other relationships. It, it puts them in their proper place. We, we do have these other identities, and they don't go away, but they cannot remain untransformed by our standing before God. And so the question becomes, we have to ask, what is our standing before God? What is our position before him? And how, in light of that, do I need to relate to the other parts of my life, the other sources of my identity? And to answer that question, we have to ask, how... What, what is my standing before God, and how does it change? What, what are the options? Because I think, I think sometimes we view our standing before God as sort of this sliding scale, this morality ladder. Well, really, really, really bad people are over here at zero, and God's over there at 100, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a 72, because, oh, what, Mother Teresa is a 70? Okay, well, then I'm probably a 60, or maybe a 65. Uh, you know, and, and, and you, you, you start ordering these things, um, and then you see in the biblical witness, uh, Ephesians 2, that we were all born children of wrath, um, that, that there's a fixed and unbridgeable gap between the righteousness of God and the sinfulness of man. And pretty much everybody's standing over there at zero, uh, desperately in need of something to change. Uh, that's, that's where Moses and his family stood in that place of disobedience and that, in that lack of covenantal standing before the wrath of God. And they placed themselves through the means of grace that God had provided under the protection of the Abrahamic covenant. And, and we standing here at the, at, the, at the final age of history are afforded uh, the, the wondrous revelation of what that was pointing to. And we know now that the promises given to Abraham, the law that in this book of Exodus will one day be given through Moses, that, that the promise that, that God will one day make to the King David who is descended from this people of Israel, all these covenants, all of these promises are pointing to and will be fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. God himself incarnated as a man 
and come to save us. And that's, that's what we read in Galatians 4 there. Born of a woman, born under the law. Why? So that those of us under the law, us human beings, might become sons of God, might receive adoption and be accepted by our Father in heaven. Because the, the blood of the circumcision is representative. Um, it, it, it's, it's not magical. God, uh, in, in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet denounces the people of Israel saying, yeah, you're circumcised, you're following the rules. You're circumcised in the flesh, but you're uncircumcised in your hearts. It's, it's an outward physical indicator of an inward condition, a standing before God. And that blood, that sacrifice, that setting apart are all indicators, are all foreshadowers of the sacrifice and reconciliation we would receive through Christ. That's our standing before God. To, to, to all who believe in him, God has given the right to become his sons. That Israel was his firstborn son, and, and we Gentiles, I don't think any of us here claim any Jewish heritage. We're, we're like children <laughs> born un, in an uh, untimely, uh, but we've been grafted into that tree. We're, we're secondborn and thirdborn sons. Um, but, but the point still remains, God has extended that grace, that, that covenantal standing before him. He's extended it to the entire world, to even people so far flung from his original promises, um, because he is that gracious, because he is that good, and he has called all people everywhere to believe in him and receive that standing before him. And, and I love to go on about the judicial aspects of the gospel because that's the first place my brain goes. I, I look at God's holiness and his righteousness and his just wrath at sin, and so when I think of what the gospel does, I see it as excusing me from that. I see Christ's record of righteousness replacing my own embarrassing one and, and me being forgiven for my sins, and that's true, and the gospel does that, but that's not the only thing. It goes a bridge further. God not only pardons us, God not only spares us from destruction, but then he adopts us and accepts us as his children. And it's almost a bridge too far. It's almost, God, don't destroy me. I'm okay with that. But, but, but please then let me leave your presence because I, don't, I, I can't bear to look on you. And God seeks after us. God's love finds us where we are and says, it's not enough to save this people of Israel from slavery in the material world. It's not even enough to save them eternally. It's not even enough to reach the entire world, Jews and Gentiles included. It's not enough to spare them from death in sin. It will only be complete once we've been received into the eternal love of our Father. That is the grace of God, and that is the grace that we proclaim weekly. That is the grace we celebrate. That is what we, we announce when we share the Lord's Supper together. That is why we are here. That's what's changed us, and I hope it marks all of our earthly relationships. I hope it marks how we treat our spouses and our children and our parents, whether we feel they gave us enough acceptance or not growing up. Uh, I hope when we... My wife has been reading a great book um, and was just sharing some of her, her thoughts with me on it. And she pointed out that well, when, when our kids disobey, you know, the, 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 the virtuous response would be like, oh, no, I'm worried that my children aren't going to be good people and moral enough people and that they're, they're not that. And, and her first thought was, I'm mad that they're 
disobeying me. <laughs> um, and, and she identified that, that that came out of a place because she wanted to be, to be God to, the, to, the, to our kids, that they should obey her because her word is law. And, and I was nodding because, yeah, that's me too. That's why I get mad. It's not anything higher or holier. I just want them to listen and do as I say. And, 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 and she made the connection, and then it took me longer to get it, but I did eventually. Um, and that's that, that when, we, when we think about the gospel, we're not standing over our children dictating the laws of God to them. We're standing with them in a place desperately needing reconciliation before the actual lawgiver. Um, and, and we are parents and we have stewardship to, to train and, and teach these kids. But, but our standing before God is shockingly similar. We need the same things. We want the same things. Um, and so that's just this is one example, but I, I urge you to look at your lives and look at your sources of identity, whether it's your work, whether it's your, your family or your friends or your interests, your hobbies or your relationships or your, or your cultural heritage, and ask yourself, how does my standing with God heal that, change that, inform that? Does it need to become the less? Does it need to become more? But it needs to be completely transformed. And when you think of the people that you share those identities with, you have to ask, what is their standing before God? What do they need that I need? What do they need that I once needed and have found and have been found by God? I pray that it, you, you reflect on that. I pray that, that the Spirit convicts you about that as, as it has wrestled with me all this week. This... In part, it was sleep deprivation, but this was a hard one to pull out of the depths of my heart because it's one I do terrible at. We need to, we need to get to some of the stuff I'm spiritually good at and preach on that. I don't know if there is actually any of that, but um, I'm hoping we'll find it at some point and, and an easy week will come. But let's pray. God, our Father, God, we can call you Father because you have allowed us to, because you have extended us an honor we could never claim for ourselves, much less, much less consider to ask for. God, thank you. Thank you for calling us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for accepting us and making us your own. As we sing together today, as we respond, as we wish each other well, as we go to our homes, I pray that you will not leave us unchanged, that you will stay with us through the days to come, that your spirit will will cajole us, will, will guide us, will urge us, will open our eyes and, and raise our heads to see the people around us who need, who need to hear the words that you once spoke to our hearts, that we are yours, that you have claimed us, that you love us and we are your children. Thank you, God, for your grace and your goodness. We love you and we thank you, and it's in the name of Christ.